Well, greetings, everyone. Uh, thank you, Pastor Dave and Pastor Dan Huaikai, for inviting me uh, to speak here. It's a privilege to be with you all. Um, we give you greetings on behalf of Pillar Baptist Church, and we're so thankful for the partnership that we have in the gospel. Uh, I was uh, there at the retreat this past week, and, uh, you know, I've never had to preach eight sermons um, during a retreat. So it's one thing to preach eight sermons, and I was telling the congregation earlier that it's another thing for the students to hear me eight times. And uh, they were great listeners, so you have trained them so well here at this church. So thank you so much. Well, if you have God's word with you, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And in this very important part of the book of Hebrews, a place of great warning, the author of Hebrews warns us, beginning in verse 1, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape? If we neglect so great a salvation, after it was at first spoken through the word, the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts to the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Will you bow with me in a word of prayer? Our Father, we uh, humbly ask of you this morning that by the power of your Holy Spirit that your word would come with full conviction and power and that not only in the preaching of your word, but by also by the listening to that word, that we would become not merely hearers, but doers, and that we would apply that word to our lives, and that we would treasure the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please do a work that is impossible for man to do, but only possible for what you can do in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this section of Hebrews illustrates the way that the Bible addresses us everywhere and comes to us. There is a strong note of urgency, note of solemnity, a note of profound seriousness that is characteristic throughout the Bible. You can read it in the Gospels. You can read it in the book of Acts. You can also read it in every letter of the New Testament. This is the idea that comes forth. Flee from the wrath to come. John the Baptist, the first preacher in the New Testament, warned the people the same message that Jesus gave. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That was the spirit of their message. There was a note of desperate urgency of profound seriousness. And the same note of urgency was given in the first sermon in the book of Acts by Peter when he preached on the day of Pentecost. And he says, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. You will find this in Paul's letters as well. For example, in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, he pressed the call of the gospel upon his hearers. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Now, one of the greatest preachers we know in this whole entire world is Jesus Christ. We all like the sermon he gave in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. Who doesn't love that message? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But we tend to forget that two verses later, our Lord goes on to say, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, John 3, 18. The world does not like this message. And yet if we do not warn in our preaching, in our churches of this message, we would not only have to rip out most of the pages of our Bibles, but more terrifying, millions of souls would be carried into a state of eternal torment as they happily walk their way towards it, ignorant and blinded by the warning signs along the way. And so here in chapter 2 of Hebrews, we see a particular powerful way in which the Bible warns us in a loving manner. His readers are urged and pleaded and exhorted to pay attention to the things of the gospel. You see, as a loving pastor, the author of Hebrews saw that their problem was that they believed in the gospel, but that they were living in a very difficult time where temptations would come. They were struggling with their commitment of their cost of following Christ. Their world seemed to be falling apart. Persecution was coming in. All that they knew of life, materialism, their property were going away one by one. And these external factors tempted them to become lax in their commitment to Christ. They had lapsed into a dullness of hearing the truth, and they had a fading vision of Jesus. Decay had set in, and they, had, they were experiencing a crisis of their faith. And the author of Hebrews is disturbed over what had happened to them. And so there was this sluggishness about their faith, as well as an indifference, and they were tempted to revert back to their old way of living. And I hope you can see that the author talks about something that is very well known to all of us. He's speaking to the spiritual condition of evangelical Christians that are living today. And so we all ought to stop and ask ourselves, well, is this characteristic of me? Am I being sluggish in my faith? Am I tempted to return to my old way of living? And so when we get to chapter 2, the author now fires off this great warning. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And with that, he calls his hearers to take earnest heed to the gospel. I want us to first look at what brought about this great warning in the first place. Now, if you look back at chapter 1 of Hebrews, what's interesting is that you'll not find any commands. You won't find any commands that are given to the church. But rather, phrase by phrase, line by line, the author has been arguing that Jesus Christ is the greatest one. He is the incomparable one. There is none like him. The whole chapter of Hebrews chapter 1 is a great declaration of God's final word to the world. The chapter begins like this. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways... In these last days, that is the days that we are living in now, he has spoken to us in his son. His point was that there is a finality with Jesus. There's a decisiveness with Jesus and his word. That was the point of Hebrews chapter 1. And then the author gives Christ various titles. He is called the heir of all things. He is called the one through whom God made and created the world. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's nature. He is the upholder of all things by the word of his prowess. These titles are heaped up by the author phrase by phrase in order for us to get the idea that Christ and his word is like no other and therefore we must pay attention to him. And with this word, 
for this reason, or therefore in chapter 2, verse 1, the first command is fired off. In other words, the author is showing us the so what of who Jesus is in chapter 1. For this reason, because God has spoken to us in these last days, because Jesus Christ is the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, the king of all kings, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. The fact that Christ is superior to any human being, to any prophet or any angels, follows logically that we are indeed under a moral obligation to pay attention to the gospel. This tells us that the greatest attention that we must give on this earth the best care and diligence of our lives is in the hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Eternal issues are at stake in the very gospel. And by that very nature, it demands our fullest seriousness. This is a business above flesh and blood. It is the divine revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls upon every, every one of us to give earnest heed to what it has to say. There is urgency here. It says we must. Now we are not to give a quick glance and treat the Bible and the gospel like we do, like a catalog that comes from home from Crate and Barrel, or like we do in our Instagram feeds, or any occasional things that we might have, like special occasions at church. Earnest heed means undivided attention. This is the Christian's great obligation it is paying attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it begs the question for all of us, doesn't it? To what are we paying the greatest attention to? To what are we consumed by? To what is our fix, our eyes fixed upon? To what is our hearts captivated? What are you listening to? What demands your attention throughout the day? Now, if the answer to those questions are anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are in grave danger. And the author is lovingly points to his congregation and to us some of these critical dangers. And there's two of these I'd like to give you this morning. The first is the danger of drifting. Look, look at verse 2 again, uh, verse 1, I'm sorry, of chapter 2. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Now, let's consider that word drifting for a second. William Tyndale in his early English translation had glide, lest we glide away from the truth. That is one way to read the verb, as an image of sliding past through carelessness, gliding past the place that we ought to come to land. Another possible way of reading the verb is to think of losing something that slips from your grasp without realizing it. The philosopher Plato uses it of something slipping from one's memory. How relatable this is to our own memory. How easily we forget where we left our keys or our wallet or what we ate last night or what we did with our friends the other day. The, this, this tells us that drifting is something that happens so easily to us. Now, there is a more graphic picture of drifting. Uh, this word, along with pay attention, has a nautical significance having to do with ships and sailing. And so some of you may be here, your ships and your sailors. The first verb is to pay attention to or to heed. It means to moor a ship, to tie it up and fasten the anchors to the seabed. The second verb, drift, can be used of a ship 
which has carelessly drifted off course, or a ship in harbor that has slipped its moorings. Now, when you put these two words together, you get the sense of verse 1 in this way. Therefore, we must carefully and eagerly fasten and anchor our lives to the things which you have heard, which is Christ, lest the ship of life drift past the harbor of salvation and we glide away forever. Now imagine reclining on a raft in the ocean, Atlantic-Kai Beach or Hawaii-Kai Beach or whatever. All seems well. The sun is shining. And then you become drowsy in the warmth of the sun, falling asleep. And when you finally sit up, you're arrested suddenly by the awareness that you have drifted far from the shore. There you are, surrounded by deep and a dangerous sea with no landmarks and with no bearings. You know, this actually happened to me some 15 years ago when I first visited this island. I was snorkeling with some friends. I forget what beach I was at, but I was floating there, mesmerized by the turtles, all the colorful fishes, when the current took me further and further away from the shore. And I went, went up and I tried to swim back to the shore, but the current was so strong. And so I panicked and I felt that I couldn't make it back to the land. And I yelled, help, help. And thankfully, my friend was still on the shore. And with his broad shoulders, he came and he gave me a pink floaty. And even though my pride was a little hurt that I had to go back shore in a pink floaty, I was relieved. The great danger highlighted here is that drifting away is something that happens largely unnoticed, just drifting away from Christ. While it is happening, the changes are imperceptible, but only later as you have drifted far away do its consequences become clear. I want you to listen to William Booth, the founder of Salvation Army. Think of drift away in verse 1 and listen to what he has to say. He says, look, look at that man yonder. Look at him going down the river. There he is going down in a boat in Niagara, with Niagara beyond. He has got out into the stream. The rapids have got hold of the boat and down he goes. He need not pull at the oars. He has nothing to do but to be still, to go on with his sleep, to go on with his novel. He is going Going, going, my God, he has gone for over, and he never pulled an oar. And then he says, that is the way people are damned. They go on. They are preoccupied. They are taken up. They have no time. They don't think. They neglect salvation, and they are lost. What a picture of those who are drifting. They're doing nothing. It's so quiet, so easy, and so damning. Brothers and sisters, hell is full of people who are doing nothing. I cannot begin to tell you the number of people that I've come across in my ministry whom I've known and seen who were once committed in the church. I don't see them anymore. Some have even come face to face with the gospel. They felt an interest in it. They have been at the entry into the harbor. They simply had to fasten themselves to Christ and go a little further to arrive in the port. Where did they go? Well, they're not renouncing Christ. They're not against the church. Some are still very religious attenders of the church. But for some reason or another, they have gradually, gradually turned aside to secular life and secular interest, and they have allowed themselves to drift past it. 
Oh, what a tragic thing it is to be in the sight of haven only to drift past. I can't think of a more contemporary warning than this, just drifting away from Christ. What are some of the reasons? What are some of the currents that bring about this drifting away from Christ? Well, there's first the current of years. You know, the longer one lives, the more prone they are to drifting. There are many who once professed Christ in their youth or in college or in their young adult lives. And while there seemed to be an initial spark for Christ, over time, that spark began to dwindle. And usually, you know, these are people that feel that they have arrived in the Christian walks, that they feel that they have arrived at a certain level of the Christian walks. And so those who feel that they have arrived, they're no longer going to travel. And there are many professing Christians who unconsciously and carelessly have slid away from their earlier better selves and have not committed to the gospel as they did in their earlier days. Oh, they keep appearances. But by these appearances are very deceptive. And with each year that passes by, it has carried them down the stream and away from their more vigilant self. But there's also a, a current of familiarity with the truth. Now, when we grow up in churches where we are accustomed to hearing the gospel message, we can get to the point where we tend to slip into a mode where amazing grace is simply not amazing anymore. In fact, it's right down boring because it becomes so familiar and routine to us. It has been well said that the most certain truths too often lie in the dormitory of the soul side by side with exploded errors. And that is the danger for everyone who has grown up in the church and attends churches where the gospel is regularly preached. We can become complacent and familiar with the gospel that it no longer moves our hearts. And this ought to alarm us because the writer of Hebrews isn't so much concerned about people who outrightly reject the gospel. He's not concerned about those who are on the outside saying all this gospel stuff is gibberish. No, he's speaking to those who are right in our midst, who are in danger of drifting away from the gospel because they sing a custom grace, a custom grace. How boring is the sound? Well, then there is perhaps the most dangerous current of them all, the current of negligence due to all the trivial distractions and busyness and cares and concerns of this world. You know, we can be so occupied with other things that we do not pay attention to the gospel. We know the gospel is important. We give lip service that Christ is the center of our lives, but we neglect it. Negligence to the gospel happens when thousands of other trifles and distractions absorb our daily lives and draw us away from the gospel, and so we drift. There is a, a Scottish Puritan, William Guthrie, who was a contemporary of the great Puritan John Owen. And he only wrote one book. And that book title is The Christian's Great Interest. And in this section, he gives warnings for why people do not pay attention to the gospel. And one of the main reasons, he said, is slothfulness and negligence. Listen to what he wrote. Be ashamed, you who spend so much time in reading of romances, in adoring your persons, in hawking and hunting, and consulting the law concerning your outward state in the world. And it may be worse things than these. Be ashamed, he said, that you spend so little time in the search of this, 
whether you be an heir of glory or not, whether you be in the way that leads to heaven or the way which will land you in darkness forever. Now, what a rebuke this is in our Instagram, TikTok, social media uh, day and age. Men and women are so absorbed in a thousands of trifles that the gospel does not receive their time or attention. They neglect the truth and they drift away from it. <laughs> there, there's hardly a man or a woman who finds themselves in a worldly secular life and finds themselves immersed in the darkness of the kingdoms of Satan, whoever planned it that way. You see, no one ever plans to be in the kingdom of darkness. But little by little, we drift and we drift and we drift. Now, I have considered all these reasons at length of drifting, not only because I want it to be practical for you, but because I know myself. I know my own heart too well and my own tendency to do the very things that I have been talking about. Beloved, let us take heed to this warning of drifting. It is so easy to follow the cares of this world and be lost to God. It is so easy to find yourself engrossed in the affairs of the world as if the things of the world are the most important thing in this life. And it usually happens in very small steps, absences from worship, undervaluing the church, personal time with God's slips, attitudes of God's people and the pastor becomes more critical and cynical over time. This is often accompanied by moral failing. And so we drift and we drift and we drift. It's all so subtle, unnoticeable. And soon we find ourselves in another country altogether. That is the constant danger to all of God's disciples, the drift of life, following the desires and the cares of the world and losing our first vision, our first love, our first devotion, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the author says, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. And then in order to drive home the point of drifting, he points secondly to the eternal consequences, the danger of eternal consequences. And he uses a rhetorical device of lesser to the greater to emphasize just how severe the danger is. It's one of the great questions of the Bible. And you find it right here in verse two. For if the word spoken through angels, proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. There's the lesser thing, but now he argues to the greater thing. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That is one of these verses that dispel the common notion that the New Testament is easier and more loving than the Old Testament. It's actually quite the reverse. If neglecting the word of angels that brought about the law of God brought each, uh, earthly consequences, what would the consequences be of those who ignore the salvation of his son? In order to feel the weight of this question, perhaps it'll help if we worked our way backwards in this text. Now let's consider this word salvation. Salvation is a great word, isn't it? What a beautiful expression so great a salvation, I mean, we could have a whole sermon on this, 
But at its core, salvation is great because it delivers us from the great enemy. This is what salvation means, escaping or being saved from someone or something. And you ask, escape from what? The punishment of God due to our sin. Sin then is our great enemy. For the wages of sin is what? Death. And Ezekiel 11, 18, 4 says, the soul who sins will die. The world has ignored the fact of death. It has ignored the fact of coming judgment. Hebrews 9, 27 tells us, it is appointed for men to die once, and then comes the judgment. Death is not the end for all of us. Each of us will die. And after that, we will stand in the presence of Almighty God. The question that every single soul must consider is, how will you stand before Almighty God and give an account of your life? What will you say to God when he asks, did you keep my commandments? Did you love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? What will you say to God? There is nothing you can say. There is nothing you can do. No man or woman will be able to stand before God, for they will be quickly banished from his sight for failing to keep his commandments, and they will suffer in hell forever. Sin is our great enemy. But the Bible tells us there is one way to escape the wrath of God, the precious blood of the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Later in Hebrews 9 verse 12, we read these words, not with the blood of goats and, goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And so if you are an unbeliever here today, and you have visited this great island and come to visit this church, there is nothing more important for you to consider than your own soul. Your own, the most pressing need in your life is your own condition before God and that if you were to die tonight, you would face God's judgment. If you see yourself as a hopeless sinner in the sight of the holy God, then I plead with you that the remedy is the, is the cross of Jesus Christ who has come to deliver you from the wrath of God. By his shed blood on the cross, he came to die for your sins. This is what makes salvation so great. And it is not only that Jesus has died in the grave. Our Lord and Savior is not a dead Savior. After three days, he rose from the grave. The empty tomb proves that death is not the end, that Christ has defeated sin and death. And so if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, he can guarantee you salvation from death and also raised to new life. Is there anything more glorious than that? Is there any greater hope than that? Anything more precious in the world than that? Well, now having spoken of so great a salvation, consider the word neglect. And we read this verse with an entirely different tone. The word neglect is applied to a person's attitude that doesn't care, doesn't care, not concerned with the gospel. It means to disregard. Jesus used it in Matthew 22, 5, and speaking of those who paid no attention and neglected the great invitation of the wedding feast because they were too busy. They're too busy with their business, too busy with their jobs. And here we must recognize again that the author is not concerned about those who have never heard the gospel, but it's a warning for those who have heard, who have heard the gospel. 
This is a warning for those who no longer marvels at the incomparable Christ, no longer desires to make gospel strides, and whose love for God begins to diminish little by little, and whose love for the world increases more and more. This is a serious warning for those who simply do not care for so great a salvation. Now let's read this verse again and feel the weight of this question. How will we escape if we neglect? It doesn't say reject. It doesn't say fight against, but simply neglect so great a salvation. Is there any other way? Is there any other escape in this life? There is not. Now, you know, we are living in an unusual time in history. We are living in a day of grace. This is a day of God's mercy today. Judgment day has not come and arrived at this point. This is a day of God's patience. And so, you know, we, we, are, we tend to, to think this way. Well, God is patient. He's gracious. And so he won't mind if we neglect the gospel a little bit. I mean, he understands that we're busy with our lives. We can get careless with the gospel. You know, at least I'm coming to church, right? At least I'm, I'm, I'm showing up. At least I'm putting offering in the offering plate, right? It's only natural that we ignore the gospel here and there. God, God is merciful after all. But you see, the author of Hebrews is actually arguing just the opposite. He says, because this is the day of grace, because this is the day of mercy and patience, therefore, he says, it is doubly, doubly full of condemnation and doubly dangerous. Listen to how the reformer John Calvin puts it. He said, it is not only the rejecting of the gospel, but even the neglecting of it that deserves the severest penalty in view of the greatness of the grace which is offered in it. God wishes his gifts to be valued by us at their proper worth. The more precious they are, the baser is our ingratitude if they do not have their proper value for us. In other words, the more precious the gift, the greater the penalty if it is ignored. If you turn your back on the blood of Christ, if you neglect the gospel, there is nothing left for you. There is no more atonement left, no other means of escape from divine vengeance. Beloved, there is no escape if we neglect so great a salvation. And so who of us have not drifted in this room? Who of us have not insulted God by forgetting him and being careless with the gospel? Who of us have not neglected and, and neglected so great a salvation? We have all sinned. We have all neglected him. We have all time to time drifted from Christ and put other things before him. And there is no greater insult to God than that. And so what can we do? What can we do? Nothing, really. Because God has already accomplished everything in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we must fly again to the rock of ages and sing, let me hide myself in thee. Let the waters and the blood from thy precious blood which flowed be of sin, of double cure, save from wrath, and make me pure. We need to make certain that we pay closest attention to what we have heard for what has already been accomplished in Christ. And in this, we paradoxically see our own responsibility in this, do we not? God has said that salvation is this great thing because we contribute nothing to it except our sin but it has all been paid by Jesus Christ. And yet, if we drift away from it, 
if we neglect it, if we fail to pay close attention to it, then the consequences are disastrous. Drifting, as we learn, doesn't take much effort on our part. It happens by virtually doing nothing. Staying on course as a Christian is quite the reverse. It requires constant diligence. And so I want to close with exhorting you and encouraging you to stay on course in the Christian life while the currents of life naturally make me drift. You see, you and I as Christians must constantly strive upstream to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in various places, I press on, I follow after, I strive, I run, I fight. A man and a woman must consciously strive to be a Christian. He must consciously be diligent to contemplate, to pay attention to, to keep the gospel close in our hearts. But you say, oh, you know, I want to lie in bed a little bit longer. No, I must get up. Oh, I want to mindlessly scroll through my phone. No, I must open the Bible. I must commune with the Lord. I must hear from Him. I want to get that promotion at all costs. I want to extend my career. No, I must consciously set myself to make sure that the gospel of Jesus Christ gives my uttermost attention and diligence. Listen, no man, no tide, no tide ever sweeps a man to glory. You must diligently strive and toil and press on to give earnest heed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, I plead with you, let us then pay closest attention to our great and wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for these warning passages, for it reminds us of what is most important in our lives. And it also reminds us of the many things we have done to neglect so great a salvation. We have put many cares of this world, things that are important in this life, education, family, our jobs, things that are important that you've given to us. But often it's these secondary things that become primary things, and we forget what is primary. Forgive us, Lord, for doing so. We pray that as we are soon going to partake of communion, that we will be reminded of the most important and precious thing in this world, the blood of Christ for our sins. And that as we commune with you, our hearts would be renewed to our first love to the Lord Jesus Christ. We give you praise for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.